Good evening, and welcome to our class. We're learning uh, a sikha, a talk from the Rebbe. Um, obviously, it's going to be focused on a theme that comes from this week's parasha. Um, this week's parasha is parasha's Vayishlach. Vayishlach is actually in the middle of a story, in the middle of a dramatic situation going on with Yaakov, with Jacob, the third of our forefathers. But before we get to the parasha, I'd just like to point out that uh, the, the sikha, the talk that we're going to be learning today, is a talk that was delivered by the Rebbe on the 19th of Kislev, 1955. It was 1954, actually. Um, 5715, so that's 1954, because I, I think it was before January 1st. Uh, the 19th of Kislev commemorates, or is the celebration, of the Alter release from prison. The Alter Rebbe was the author of the Tanya. He was the first Chabad Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. Um, he had quite a few opponents, and when they realized that they can't quash the Hasidic movement uh, from within, they couldn't do it, uh, you know, from within the Jewish community, they decided to go and go nuclear, and they went to the Tsar, they went to the Russian government, and they slandered the Alter Rebbe, and the Alter Rebbe was arrested on charge, charges of treason. Um, he spent about 53 days under arrest, he was in prison, and then he was freed on the 19th of Kislev. So that's like, you know, the big holiday in Chabad and it actually had ramifications for the entire Jewish nation. Uh, today was the 10th of Kislev. The 10th of Kislev, um, a similar situation happened to his son, Rabbi Dov Beri, who was the second Chabad Rebbe. It was a little bit different, different circumstances uh, around his arrest, but he was arrested, imprisoned, and eventually released on the 10th of Kislev, which was nine days before his father's release date. So, between the 10th and the 19th of Kislev, these are very auspicious times um, for the idea of Hasidus, the Hasidic way of life. How long was the Rabbi Dovber? He was in jail from the end of the holidays, after some Torah, until the 10th of Kislev. So he was in, it was, it was shorter than his father's. His father was in prison 53 days, and he was probably in prison the 40, 43 days, something like that. Mm. Uh, it was shorter, yeah. <clears throat> it was different type of circumstances, etc. Um, so this sikha was delivered on the 19th of Kislev, and we're learning it today on uh, the night or the evening following the 10th of Kislev. And the theme of this talk is something that's very much connected to the whole concept of Hasidus, and especially Chabad Hasidus, as we will, as we will see. The theme of, okay, so, so what's going on in this parasha? Last week, we learned that Yaakov had to run away from his brother, Esau. Esau wanted to kill him. He was very upset that he had, quote-unquote, stolen the blessings from him. Um, Rivka, their mother, told Yaakov to go run off to Haran, and over there he should marry. And he did so. He married. And after 20 years, after 20 years, he had, he had 11 sons and one daughter. And God told him it's time to come back. Um, he was immensely wealthy, which was a story for itself. And uh, he knew that he could not ask his father-in-law for permission. Loved one would somehow find a way to con him out of his wives and children and all of his money. So Yaakov basically just ran away from him. Uh, Loved one chased him, and his intention was to wipe out the family, and God saved Jacob. So Jacob managed to survive Loved one. And now as he's coming close to the land of Israel, I think he already, he, he, he reached the land of Israel. His brother Esau uh, comes marching towards him with 400 men. 
and obviously you don't have to um, you don't have to be a, a prophet to know what Esau's intentions were. In fact, he made his intentions very clear on Twitter and on uh, and on CNN, and uh, he was very very clear what he wanted to do with Yaakov. Um, the thing is, though, that Yaakov himself did not have Twitter. So how did he find out that Esau was coming towards him with 400 men? So Yaakov, he knew that Esau was a bit of a tough cookie. So before he actually came, you know, closer to Beersheba, I imagine, before he actually uh, came home, he sent messengers to his brother Esau. Those messengers were angels. He sent messengers who were angels to Esau, his brother. Why did he send the angels? Because he knew his brother was a gangster. And his brother was a pretty bad guy. And who knows, his brother might, uh, harm the, might harm the messengers. So therefore, he decided to send angels. And uh, the sword of Esau can't really hurt an angel. So the angels come to Esau and they give over a message that Yaakov is coming in peace. And um, Esau was not really interested in the message. And in fact, he had already had 400 men and was planning on going and attacking Yaakov. So the angels come back to Yaakov and they tell him, we came to your brother, but he is coming to attack. So now Yaakov has to prepare for uh, the inevitable showdown. And the Torah tells us that he prepared in three ways. First thing is he prepared a gift to send to Esau, to appease him. He knew that Esau was a very materialistic person. He uh, had big eyes and a big stomach. And so if we'll give him, uh, you know, a gift that might appease him. That was step number one. Step number two. He prepared for war. Torah tells us that he separated his camps and he prepared himself for war. He made up a, a battle strategy, a battle plan. And thirdly, he prayed to God. What was his prayer? Let's go to source number one, page three. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your land and to your birthplace and I will do good to you. I have become small. Katointi, I have become small from all the kindnesses and from all the truth that you have rendered your servant. For with my staff, I crossed this Jordan River. And now I have become two camps. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him, lest he come and strike me and a mother with children. All right. So we see how he, uh, he starts off by saying, you know, I'm coming, uh, I'm coming with the merits of my father, Yitzchak, or my grandfather, Avram, and my own merits. I mean, you, uh, you promised me you would take care of me. However, Katointi, I've become very, very small because of all the great kindness and the truth that you have shown me. I crossed the Jordan River with my staff. What does that mean? All he had was a staff. He had nothing else. That's one of the explanations of it. All I had was a staff. I was destitute. I was a refugee. I had nothing to my name. And now I'm coming back 20 years later, and I'm very, very successful. I have a family, a large family, and I have a lot of wealth. So I'm small. I feel like I've become like nothing. And Rashi says this a bit more. He says, I've become small. My merits have diminished because of the kindnesses and the truth that you have rendered. You know, he starts off, I have my own merits. I have the merits of my father or my grandfather. But then he says, however, because of all the great kindness they have shown me, I think I've basically... Uh, Used up all my frequent flyer points. You know, I don't have any more mileage with you. Therefore, I fear that I may have become sullied with sin. Since you issued me this promise, 
And these sins will cause me to be delivered into Esau's hands. Just a little while earlier, God had promised him, return home, I will take care of you. Yaakov says to himself, and he communicates this to God in his prayer, he says, I've got a problem. What's the problem? It's true, I have a lot of merits. However, the great kindness that you have shown me, that you've, you've, you've transformed me from a, a, a penniless refugee into a very wealthy man, a very wealthy family, so now I fear that I have no more merits left. And from the time that you promised me that you'll take care of me in the, in the Holy Land, in, in, in my homeland, I think from then until now, it's possible that I have sinned. It's possible that I have not served God properly. I have not lived up to my potential. I have not lived up to what's, to what's expected of me. And therefore, as a result of that, I'm not deserving of God's protection anymore. And therefore, he says, please protect me anymore. It's very interesting here. Um, in other words, what Yaakov is saying is, God, I have nothing to demand. For. I'm not going to be able to demand, even though technically I could demand. But because you gave me so much, I feel so small. I feel that I've lost all of my merits in front of you. And therefore, I'm just begging you from the bottom of my heart, like a poor person who has no reason at all, that you should help me out. Please help. A very raw and, and, and you know very simple prayer. So, um, the theme of today's talk that we're going to be learning is the theme of humility. What is the advantage or what is the critical importance of humility in Judaism, in general in life, especially in Jewish life? You know, there was one, it was once on Yom Kippur, and uh, it, was, it was a long day. Everyone was fasting and praying, and everyone was, you know, getting into the spiritual high, and all of a sudden... At one point, when they opened up the 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 Aron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, and the Torahs, everyone was able to see it. All of a sudden, the rabbi prostrated himself in front of the Ark and he said, "God, I am nothing in front of you." The cantor was all caught up in the excitement and everything. He prostrates himself in front of the Ark and says, "God, I am nothing before you." The butcher was very impressed. And he was also caught up in the excitement. Then he runs to the front of the ark and he prostrates himself and he says, God, I am nothing before you. The rabbi turns to the cantor and says, look who thinks he's nothing. So what, is, what does humility mean? What does it mean to be nothing before God? And are we supposed to be nothing before God? Are we supposed to have that feeling? What is the advantage to that feeling? Okay, so let's go to uh, page four. We're going to bring a... Uh, a quote from the Talmud. Very interesting quote, actually. Rava said to Rabbi Barmori. Rabbi Barmori was a very interesting sage. He, uh, he started off in the land of Israel. And then he moved to Babylon. And he was an expert in Agada. Agada means the, the homiletical parts of the Torah, the stories of the Torah, the, the you know, the stories of the Torah, Agadah. Anyway, so in the Talmud, in the Talmud you have law, you have legal discussions, and then you also have uh, Midrashic and uh, homiletic discussions. So that's Agadah. Anyway, so, and, and Rabbi Barmari was the mentor of Rava when it came to Agadic issues. So Rava said to Rabbi Barmari, from where is the popular saying, when we were small? Okay, so just as a, as a, as an introduction here, there's a rule in there's a rule in Judaism that everything comes from Torah. Everything, everything is sourced in Torah. You name it, it's sourced in Torah. 
And there's quite a few discussions in the Talmud that they say, well, what is it that people say? You know, there's a popular saying, X, Y, and Z. Where do we find this in the Torah itself? So Rava, Rava asks his mentor, Rava Barmori, he says, where can we find the source for this uh, popular saying? When we were small, we were considered to be men. And now that we are old, we are considered to be children. So where is this saying derived from? Rabbi, uh, I mean, I, I guess we could say today, the saying would go that the world is in the hands of the young. It's a popular saying. People say it sometimes. I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway, it's a popular saying. So, And it was a popular saying then, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. So Rabbi wants to know, where do we see this in the Torah? Rabbi Barmari said to him, there is a scriptural support for this. Initially, it is written, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Um, as we'll see in Source 3, we're not going to read Source 3 or Source 4, but um, when the Jewish people left Egypt, the Torah tells us that God guided them by night with a pillar of fire and by day with a cloud. And the Talmud continues, it says, God himself guarded over the Jewish people. That's in the beginning, in the genesis of the Jewish nation, right when they left Egypt and where they're just born. You know, the Exodus is called like the birth. Passover is the birth of the Jewish people. So God himself was taking care of them. But at the end, after some time passed, and it would be expected that the Jewish people would be more important. In other words, they have already grown up, so to speak. It is written, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you on the way indicating that an angel was sent and not God himself. Now, what, what are we talking about over here? When the Jewish people left Egypt right away after Passover, so God himself is guiding the Jewish people. Fifty days later, they stood at Mount Sinai and they received the Torah. After the giving of the Torah, Moses went up on the mountain and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the Jewish people sinned. And then Moses begged God that he should forgive the Jewish people. It took another 40 days. And then there was another 40 days when God gave him the second the second, the second set of tablets, of the two tablets. And during that time period, so you're talking about several months after the Jewish people had left Egypt, but it wasn't just several months later. A lot has happened since the exodus from Egypt. They went out to the, they, they crossed the sea, which was another tremendous uh, uh, situation for them. They started to eat manna, they received the Torah, they sinned and they did teshuva. They've got, they've been around the block. You know, there's been a lot that's going on for the, the past few months. Once they've been around the block, God says, all right, an angel is going to guide you. Now, Moses rejected that, but that was God's plan. God's plan was in the beginning, I'm going to take care of them myself, which is very, very special. God himself is guiding the people. But then as they grow older, as they get a little bit more mature and they, they experience more in life and they've grown in their Judaism as a nation, so at that point, God says, I'm going to send an angel. Right? So Rava Barmari says, this is where this, this popular saying is derived from. This is this is the source for this idea that when you're a child, when you're young, so God Himself gets involved. When you're young, you're very important. You're like a man. You're like you're like an adult. Once you get a little bit older, you have a little bit of experience in life. Then uh, there's less there's less involvement, and 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 uh, an angel takes care of you, and it's not God Himself. Um, so let's uh, let's go to page five, in the middle paragraph here. There is a lesson here for us. Torah logic allows for certain cases where the state of children is needed in order to be adults. In other words, there is a reality where the smaller you are, the greater you are. 
the bigger you are, the less great you are. What is that? The Tzemach Tzedek explains that this is the meaning of the verse. Because Israel was young, I, God, loved him. In this verse, God is explaining the reason for his love for the Jewish people, that he loves them because they are young. As the saying goes, when we were small, we were considered to be men. Now, let's see. That this, this is a very interesting medrash here, which, which, which kind of explains the whole evolution of God's communication to the Jewish people. You know, we talk about this all the time. People ask, why, don't, why doesn't God speak to us today? God spoke to Moses. God spoke to the people then. Why doesn't he speak to us today? Um, so some of our arguments say we don't deserve it. But this message is clear. No, it's not that we don't deserve it. It's that we've come to a point where it's, where it's inappropriate. What's the idea here? Page five on the bottom. Rabbi Azariah said in the name of Rabbi Yehuda ben Simon. Not Shimon, Simon. It's a name. To what can this be compared? To a king that had a daughter, and he loved her very much. As long as she was young, he would talk with her in public. And whenever he would see her in the courtyard, he would talk with her. Once she grew older, the king said, it is not honorable for my daughter that I should be talking with her in public. Rather, make her a private pavilion. And when I wish to talk with my daughter, I will do so in the private pavilion. So too. When God saw the Jewish people in Egypt, they were young, as the verse states, for when Israel was young, I loved him, and from Egypt I called my son. When he saw them at the sea, he spoke to them. As the verse states, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? When he saw them at Sinai, he spoke to them. As the verse states, face to face, the Lord spoke, spoke with you. But once they received the Torah, and they became a full-fledged nation, saying all that the Lord spoke, we will do and we will hear. God said, it is not praiseworthy for my children that I should be speaking with them in public. Rather, make me a tabernacle, and when necessary, I will speak with them from the tabernacle. Thus, the verse states, when Moses would come into the tent of the meeting to speak to him. Okay, so what do we see from here? That there's this general rule in the Torah. The smaller you are, the more attention you get from God. The more mature and bigger you are, the less attention you get from God. Now, again, let's do everything in its context, right? Uh, the fact that God decided he's not going to speak to the people directly like he did on Sinai and he's going to do it from the tabernacle, there was, there was a reason for that. There's an advantage to that. However, as we continue in this, in this sicha, in this talk from the Rebbe, let's try to concentrate on this idea. What we're trying to emphasize is how does one receive more attention from God? The smaller they are. The bigger they are, the less attention they receive from God. From the Medrash, it seems that, uh, you know, being mature is the better part of things, being bigger. But we're going to kind of take this message from the Talmud and from the Medrash, and we're going to kind of bring it into a, a level of understanding where we can see that one can always be young and small and childish in the eyes of God in order that they, should, that they should actually receive more attention from God, that they should have access to greater revelation from God. In other words, instead of viewing the smallness as primitive, 
On the contrary, we're going to extol the virtue of smallness, which is actually the master key, which is the best way to access God himself. All right. Um, page number seven. We will add clarity to this based on the teachings of Hasidus, which add clarity to everything. Most importantly, we will explain the practical lesson we can learn from this in our divine service of Peira and Mitzvah. What are we meant to learn from this message from the Talmud? That the smaller you are, you're a man. Big, you're an adult. The bigger you are, eh, you're a child. And this idea from the Medrash that, you know, when we were children, God spoke to us directly, publicly. And when we get older and more mature, God wants to speak to us privately. It shouldn't be so uh, clear and, and, and transparent. But what does that all mean to us? Listen to this. Next paragraph. The Talmud teaches that any person who has arrogance, God says, he and I cannot dwell together in the world. Whoa. Source number six. Let's read this, uh, this idea from the Talmud. Rav Chizda says, Rav Chizda was actually a fascinating sage. He lived for many, many, he was a very, he, he was a, he was a, a liquor, a liquor, uh, he produced liquor. He would sell liquor. He became very, very wealthy. He was one of the greatest uh, Amiroim, one of the greatest Talmudic scholars of his time. So Rav Chizda says, some say the Marukva said this, any person who has arrogance, God says, he and I cannot dwell together in the world. What's his proof for that? As it is stated, this is from King David from Psalms. He who slanders his neighbor in secret, I cut him down. One whose eyes are raised up high and his heart is expansive, I cannot tolerate it. <clears throat> um, the Hebrew words for I cannot tolerate him are oto lo uchal. So if you take the word oto, aleph, tuf, vav, and you just change around the, the, the vowels, instead of reading oto, read ito. Ito means with him. Do not read the verse oto lo uchal, rather read it as ito lo uchal, meaning with him, I cannot bear to dwell. So Rav is telling us a very powerful statement, that one who has arrogance is pushing God away. Let's see page number eight. Because such, the, the Rebbe is explaining this, this uh, statement in the Talmud. Because such people feel so important in their own eyes, <coughs> to the point of arrogance, they fail to fulfill the purpose of creation. What's the purpose of creation? Making a dwelling place for God in this world. If someone's arrogant, it means they think about themselves. They don't think about God. So someone who has arrogance is not capable of making this world a, a dwelling place for God. Not only are they not able to expand God's dwelling in this world, worse, even in the dwelling palace that already exists, they push away God's presence because he and I cannot dwell together. So if this haughty, arrogant person comes into a space, comes into a reality where God's already dwelling there, it's a holy space, but now arrogance walked in, bam, God's out. Not only does the arrogant person not invite God in, he pushes God away. You know, there's a story of a great tzaddik. His name was the Abderov. He lived, uh, he was actually during the time period of the second Rebbe, the, the one that we're celebrating his release today. So uh, one time he came to visit a certain town and there were these two uh, 
wealthy uh, philanthropists in town, and each one of them prepared a special room for the Rebbe. And it was decided they're both going to prepare a room, and the Rebbe is going to choose which home he's going to uh, stay in. And now these two wealthy philanthropists, they were very wealthy, and but the rooms were pretty much the same. But here was the difference. One of them was a guy that uh, his past was a bit checkered. They, they spoke about it. You know, he was a bit of a sinner. And he, he came clean, said, yes, you know, I've done this, I've done that. And he actually he did teshuva, he repented. And he was always, you know, he, he was very humble as a result. You know, he always knew that you should never... Uh, <laughs> He should never go and uh, try to, you know, force his opinion anywhere because you know, he's a guy that has as well to be ashamed of. So he was very humble. The other one had a pristine record. There was not a not a fleck. There was not there was nothing in his in his past. And he was very proud of himself. So after all, when he came to town, he chose to stay in the home of the first guy, the guy who had the checkered past. So he was asked afterwards, why did he choose that home? So he said, "Look, God says that." Uh, me and the arrogance are, are not good companions. I, I can't dwell in a place of arrogance. I said, it's true. This guy has a checkered past. But you know what? The advantage of that is, is that he's not arrogant. Therefore, I feel more comfortable in his home than in the home of a guy who's this big tzaddik, very holy roller, but uh, he's not humble. He's an arrogant person. So what do we see from here? That arrogance is, is, a, is a very terrible trait. And it's not just a... It's not just a bad thing. It's something that is a direct conflict with God himself. Let's continue on page eight. As is the case with all matters of holiness, increasing holiness causes the negative forces to decline in power. In our case, the more we increase in humility, the more God's presence will be revealed in our world, and it will become more of a dwelling place for God. You know, by the way, this is not just a holy thing. It's not just a divine thing. It's actually a very normal social thing. I mean, what type of friends do you like to have? What type of friends do you like to keep? Do you like having friends of, of, of you know, do you like a person that comes wherever he comes, he's, he's all talking about himself and all into himself and doesn't care about <clears> anyone else? Or do you, do, you, do you like to be around people that are more humble? Uh, this happens in marriages all the time. And I think humility is welcome. Arrogance is despised. And guess what? God created us in his image. The reason why we appreciate humility and despise arrogance is because the same is true about God. God appreciates humility and God despises arrogance. That's it. Done deal. So if so, that means that the master key to achieving anything in Judaism is through humility. That's the master key of everything. There was once a chassid of the Tzamech Tzedek of the third Chabad Rebbe came to the Rebbe and he complained. He said, I come into shul and everyone is stepping on. Everyone's, everyone's stepping on, right? Now, obviously not physically, right? But uh, I feel, I feel, I uh, say, I feel under attack by everyone that's in the place. So the Rebbe responded to him, if you don't spread yourself out over the entire shul, people won't step on you. The fact that you come in, you think that everyone's against you. Dude, <laughs> take a little bit of, you know, take a chill pill. Understand this. Not everything is about you. There's, there's a purpose higher than self. Think about others. Right? All right. So let's continue on page nine. <clears throat> Based on this, we can explain the saying, when we were small, we were considered to be men. 
And now that we are old, we are considered children as it pertains to our divine service. Whereas now that we are old, it refers to a person considered old in Torah terms, a person steeped in holiness, wisdom, and Torah knowledge. Since his soul is vested in a body, it is unavoidable that his greatness will cause him to feel a degree of self-importance. Even though his greatness is all about learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, etc., but you live on planet Earth, and on planet Earth, when you achieve, you feel good, you feel great, you have, a, you feel a degree of self-importance. Because of his greatness, he will find it difficult to negate his sense of self, and fully feel my soul is like dust to all. In other words, becoming a big scholar has its disadvantages. That becomes inevitable that a person is going to feel important. And what happens when he starts to feel important? Starts to push God out of his life. On the other hand, when we were small, we were considered to be men. This refers to a person who is small in Torah knowledge, but possesses the quality of humility. Regarding such people, the verse says, with the lofty and the holy ones, I dwell, and with the crushed and humble in spirit. God's presence is revealed most strongly to those that are humble. Let's uh, skip source seven. This is the implication of the words of the Talmud. Initially, it is written, and the Lord went before them, in which it implied that smallness is a key for the revelation of the divine presence. When the Jewish people left Egypt, they were small. They had nothing to be proud of. You know what happened as a result? Because they were so small, because they were so humble, because they had nothing to be proud of, God himself was with them. That's amazing. That's an amazing thing. And that should be something that we should that, that we should um, yearn and seek to retain, to retain that smallness, to retain that. You know, by the way, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn and we shouldn't daven and we shouldn't do mitzvahs and we shouldn't accomplish many big things. We should. But you know how the saying goes: the more I learn, the more the, the less I know. The more I learn, the more I know that there's more to know. I'm, tr I'm trying to remember exactly the context, but um, I think that Rebbe turned 80 years old. Rebbe told someone, I haven't even started my work. Maybe when he was 75 years old. Rebbe was a very, a very old man. And, and the Rebbe accomplished so much. Rebbe said, I did not even start my work. <coughs> I just heard recently, someone said that in, in 1988, there's a certain controversy that happened. The Rebbe responded to the controversy. He said, through controversy, we're not going to build Chabad. Chabad will be built in peace, not in controversy. So this guy said, 1988, the Rebbe had already was, was at the helm of, of an organization, of a movement that for over 35 years had gradually been making its presence in the world in such a powerful way. In 1988, when there was already probably a thousand emissaries around the world, and there were tens of thousands of students, and, and it was, so the Rebbe's impact was immense. The Rebbe still referred to Chabad as still being built. We're still building it. Now you can see 35 years later, I mean, that what was going on then, we can't compare it to what's going on now. A person could be at, at, you know, accomplishing so much and still feel that there's so much more to do. I have not accomplished anything yet. I haven't even started. That's called humility. But when a person accomplishes and feels like, what else can I do? I've done everything. God is going to have to build a whole new Garden of Eden, a whole new paradise for me. By the way, this is not just a joke. This is a reality. I mean, there are people recorded saying 
I know so much Torah. I'm such a big tzaddik. God is going to have to build a new paradise. Yeah. And this is exactly what we're trying to say with this idea. Yaakov, right? Let's go back to Yaakov for a moment. Yaakov was, the, the fact that he, after 20 years of living with Lava, was still able to say, I'm still an, an observant Jew. I'm still keeping all the mitzvahs. I haven't lost my connection to God after being there for 20 years. Not only that, I married and I have children and all of them are devoted to God. He had a lot to be proud of. What does he say? <laughs> all the kindness that God has done for me, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm a nothing. And therefore, when he comes to pray to God, he says, God, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to negotiate. Please help me out. That's true greatness. And that's the key to inviting God into your life. In greater let's continue here. In greater detail, there are multiple levels of humility. First, uh, actually, <laughs> the Rebbe is going to. If you have to talk, if you have to mention the three greatest Jews that ever lived, you would probably say Abraham, Moses, David. These are like the three greats. There are other greats as well, but these are like the three greats. Each one of these three greats were known for their immense humility. However, they were all different. There are multiple levels of humility. First, there is a state of complete nothingness, such as that achieved by Moses, who said, what are we? Moses was capable of this level of humility. As the verse says, Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. And other times we discussed how exactly that was possible. You know, Moses was what they call in Hebrew, Shlemus min ha'enushi. He was the perfect human being that ever lived. And yet he was the most humble, humble person. How is that possible? So it's explained that Moses would say to himself, I know why I was able to accomplish everything, because I was gifted by God with all of these wonderful traits. You know what? If Shmerel would have been gifted with all of these traits, he would have accomplished much more than me. And by the way, that's not true. Moses, with the gifts that were given to him, accomplished the most that anyone could accomplish with those gifts. But Moses was so humble that he was able to think to himself, not that I'm not Moses, I don't have this I don't have this position. No, he knew exactly his position. He knew that he was Moses. And when it was necessary, he knew how to hold his ground. He knew how to stand firm. I am Moses, yes. And I'm the messenger of God. And I'm the, I'm the conduit of the Torah. However, he was able to think to himself, you know what, if someone else would have been given the same gifts I was given, he would have accomplished more. And that's why he was humble to everyone. Humility doesn't mean to give up your position or to give up your gifts to give up that, your accomplishments. Humility means not to give yourself credit for all of this. On the contrary, based on the gifts that I have, I should have accomplished a lot more. And surely the other guy is accomplishing above and beyond based on the gifts that they were given by God. Moses was able to achieve this type of humility. The humility that he is, I'm nothing, nothing at all. Complete nothingness. Then, let's continue on page 11. Then there is the level of humility of our forefather Abraham, who said, I am dust and ashes. So that explains, this is not complete self-nullification, like who are we? It's not on the same level as, as Moses. There is still a minimal level of self-consciousness. Dust is something. Moses was nothing. Abraham was dust. Then we have the level of humility of King David. 
David was exceedingly humble. As he said, I calmed and quieted my soul. But David's humility was on the level of, I am a worm and not a man. This is a level of great humility, not feeling like a person at all. But it isn't as great as the humility of dust, an inanimate object, and it is certainly inferior to the level of complete nothingness. What are we? So David was not on the level of Abraham and also not on the level of, of Moses in the level of nothingness. All the rest of us who aren't on the level of the patriarchs, the wheels of the divine chariot or King David, the fourth wheel, certainly don't reach the level of complete nothingness. So you'll say, so if we can't reach the level of, look, David didn't reach the level of Moses, right? And we're not even close to the level of humility that King David had to show for himself. So we're like the butcher, right? I'm just kidding around. So uh, we're, we're, you know, we're not even getting close to that nothingness. Nevertheless, because Israel was young and we are small even in terms of Torah knowledge, this generates humility and brokenness of spirit, which in turn raises us to a high level we were considered to be men. Don't think that you have to be in the level of Moses' humility in order to be considered humble. <laughs> We've got plenty to be humble about. And acknowledge it. Acknowledge that we have not reached the top. Acknowledge that we have not fulfilled our potential. Acknowledge that there is a lot more for us to do. That acknowledgement itself awakens within us a broken spirit, humility. Oh, so now we're humble. And now we're able to invite God into our life. Or in other words, not only are we able to invite him into our life, he'll be happy to come in. But as long as we think, oh, of course God's going to come into me. What do you mean? I do so many mitzvahs and I know so much Torah. I'm the best Jew out there. I'm the greatest Jew. God says, no, thank you. I'll go to the other guy. All right. So this is in general, in order to have access to God, in order to invite God into our lives, we need to have you. But now let's go into more uh, specific, two specific ideas. Torah study and prayer. You'd think that in order to be successful in Torah study, you need to be a genius. The smarter you are, the higher level you are in Torah study. The more brilliant you are, the more successful you'll be in Torah. That's actually not true. It's actually not true. Success in Torah study is not dependent on brilliance. And, and we're going to bring a proof from one of the most famous, one of the most famous uh, disputes in all of the Talmud, and the way it was resolved, proves that humility trumps brilliance. Let's, let's continue on page 12. Moreover, and, and by the way, before we get into this, I'll just, uh, I'll just explain something. What is the purpose of Torah study? Well, there's a lot of purposes of Torah study. But, but the main practical purpose of Torah study is, is to know how to serve God. To know how to do the mitzvahs. This is called halacha. Halacha means the law. What is the law? How to do it? How should it be done? And the, the one who um, manages to figure out the halacha, the true halacha, and the way people should behave, that's the highest level one can achieve in Torah. So, um, in, in, the, in the Mishnah, this is all in the Mishnah. So there were, there were two great sages at a certain point during the Second Temple era. Hillel and Shammah. 
Hillel was the president of the Sanhedrin, and Shammai was the vice president of the Sanhedrin. Now these two, they were great friends, allies, um, and they both led the Jewish nation, and mainly they taught the Jewish nation. However, these two had two very different approaches to Torah study. They both learned the same Torah. They learned from the same teachers, Shmaya and Avtalia. However, Hillel was more prone to the idea of, um, of, of, of making things more available, so to speak. And Shammai was more, more disciplined. Anyway, so the students of, of, of these two great sages were basically separated into two camps. There were those that were the protégés of Hillel, and those that were the protégés of Shammai, and they were constantly arguing with each other on matters of halach. See, when God gave us the Torah, the Torah is essentially a template. He also gave us the tradition. And there is a lot of rules of how to basically extract from the Torah the laws appropriate to every, to every mitzvah. So that's what the Talmud is all about, basically dealing with how do you do all the different mitzvah. And the sages would argue about different things. They would debate back and forth. And you, recorded in the Mishnah are countless, I mean, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of debates between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel on how to do any given mitzvah. For example, one of the most famous ones is about Hanukkah. How should you light the menorah? Should you start off with one candle, then two candles, and three? Or should you start off with eight candles, and on the second night do seven, and then six, and then five, and then four? The house of Shammai, they said the way to light the menorah is that the first day you should light eight. On the second day, light seven, and then light six. They'll say, why? Whatever. Let's not get into that for now. For now. Hillel said, no, you should start with one. The next day, start with two, and then start with three, etc." Who is the halacha like? So today we behave according to Beis Hillel, the house of Hillel. We light one candle, then two candles, then three candles. Now, these two camps, they argued for years. They argued for years. And it was, in order to determine what the halacha is, it was important for a heavenly voice to come and say, the law is like Beis Hillel. Let, let's see how the Rebbe says, and we'll talk more about it after. Moreover, the quality of humility also leads to an increase in Torah knowledge and understanding. This is what the verse states, my soul is like dust to all, open my heart to your Torah. Meaning that humility is a medium that enables proper Torah study. We find this mentioned in Talmud as well, regarding the disputes between the schools of Hillel and Sham. The Talmud asks, why did the school of Hillel merit that the law is established in accordance with their opinions? The reason the Talmud raises this question is because the school of Shammai seemingly had an advantage on the school of Hillel in Torah knowledge because there were sharper analysts. Everyone agreed that the house of Shammai had the brilliant boys. They had the brilliant scholars. The house of Hillel were, were also brilliant, but not as brilliant as the Shammaiists. The Shamutim, that's what they're called in the, in the Talmudic parlance. The Shamutim. The Hillelistim were not as, uh, not as brilliant as the Shamutim. The Talmud answers that the law follows the school of Hillel because they were agreeable and forbearing and would even mention the statements of the school of Shammai before their own. You'll notice in the Mishnah every single time. Question comes up, Beis Shammai says this, Beis Hillel says that. The law is always like Beis Hillel. Beis Hillel were the ones that insisted that the opinion of Beis Shammai goes first. They were humble. Their forbearance an attribute of humility and self-nullification thus contributed to their Torah. 
leading to the law being established in accordance with them. Let's see the story from the Talmud itself. Rabbi Abba said in the name of Shmuel, for three years, Beit Shammai and Betila disagreed. These said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. And these said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. A divine voice emerged and proclaimed that these and those are the words of the living God. Both Beshama and Basil are both Torah. They're both legitimate Torah. However, the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Basil. Since both these and those are the words of the living God, why did Basil merit to have the halacha established in accordance with their opinion? Because they were kind and forbearing and they studied their own rulings and those of Beshama. Moreover, they mentioned the statements of Beishamai before their own. I think it's important to, to clarify what's going on over here. You know, there's, there's, there's rules in Torah, how to determine the Allah. You know, you know how it goes? Here's how it goes. The Torah says like this. There will come a time when there's going to be an argument between the sages of how the Allah should be. And what should you do? Anyone know? Listen to your rabbi. Listen to your rabbi. But the rabbis are arguing. Now, of course, you should listen to your rabbi. But if the rabbis are arguing, the rabbis have to figure out what is the halacha going to be. How are we going to light the minera? One to eight or eight to one? Yeah. The Torah says they should have a vote. It's not a democracy. Democracy, everyone has a vote. In Torah, no one has a vote besides for the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin should have a vote. And whoever the majority is like, that's it. That's the halacha. No questions asked. So here comes the big question. I understand. Why were Beishamah and Basil arguing for three years? Why didn't they just take a vote and move on? And by the way, it's very clear in, in, the, in the law, a heavenly voice can't determine the law. Heaven has no right. Heaven has no influence on the law. After Moses passed away, that's it. Prophecy has no place in determining Allah. So what's going on here? Why? Why were they arguing for three years? What was the question? Let them just take a vote and move on in life. Here's the thing. Base Hillel had the votes. Base Hillel were the majority. Base Shammai were the minority. So why didn't they just take the vote and move on in life? Everyone understood that Base Shammai was smarter. They knew that the minority was more erudite um, and brilliant. Now, so why didn't the base Hillel people just team up and, and, and just go with Beishamai? No, because that's not how Torah works. These sages had to understand their opinion in their own mind. So you had those from the house of Shammai who were brilliant, and they understood Allah in a certain way. Then you had the, 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 those from the, the school of Hillel who were also brilliant, but who acknowledged that perhaps the Shammai people, the Shamutim, were more brilliant than them. Even though they knew that base Hillel had the votes, the question was, should the halacha go according to the majority or should it go according to the brilliant ones? So the heavenly voice came out and said, guys, there's a rule. <laughs> the rule is you go according to the majority. I are going to ask, but they're more brilliant. The answer is they're more brilliant and they're also true and legitimate. But with regard to halacha, determining how the Jewish nation should behave, halacha is like this. And why did they have the votes? Why were they the majority? Why did they merit that their opinion became the accept that Allah across the board all over Torah? Because they were humble. And when it comes to Torah study, humility 
is more important and more valuable than brilliance. Because the humility brings you to discovering what does God really want in the Torah. And there's one more thing that humility really helps us with, and that is prayer. Page 14. Similarly, with regard to prayer, the Amida prayer must be done with a feeling of self-nullification, like a servant before his master, who can't even move without permission. Right During the Amida prayer, we stand still. We don't move around. In addition, the Amida prayer begins with the request, my Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Framing the prayer as following God's cues. I'm not my own person. I'm not my own, you know, I, I don't know how to pray myself. I'm just, I'm just following God. I'm just saying what God wants me to say. So that's a very high level of self-nullification. In order to achieve the requisite level of self-nullification, lengthy meditation is required. This is especially true in our times that merely contemplating the line, my Lord opened my lips, is not enough. And even the preceding Shema and its blessings is insufficient. That is why the Psuke de Zimra, the verses of praise, were added later to the prayers. And it was later stated that meditation is required even before beginning to pray. So there's a lot of work to do in order to achieve the necessary humility for the Amida prayer that it should be done properly. Despite all of this, we see that unfortunately, even after all of this introduction, it still sometimes happens that we fail to pray with the proper state of mind, like a servant before his master. But this is all for people that are old. What do we mean old? They think they've achieved everything. But when we are young, we are like what the Mithalad Abbas says about a poor person. Um, in the physical... Second... Did I miss something? No. Uh, like the poor person in the physical or spiritual sense, that he needs no deep meditation because as soon as he recalls his impoverished state, he breaks down in bitter tears. Similarly, in our case, humility helps us achieve the necessary self nullification in God's presence that prayer requires. Prayer, like Torah study, is a general mitzvah. It is compared to the spine that runs through the entire body and holds up all of the limbs. And so you have to get prayer right. What is the key to getting prayer right? Humility. Someone who's a hot shot, someone who knows everything, in order for them to achieve the humility, they have to think and have to meditate. And it's all big business. But someone who realizes and understands and appreciates that they haven't even started. I'm young, I'm a child. You have the master key to prayer. It is therefore clear that when a person feels small, they should utilize this feeling in a positive and holy manner to reach true humility, as opposed to false humility that Alter Rebbe condemns in Tanya. <laughs> true humility is the conduit for incomparably greater success in Torah study, prayer, and mitzvah observance. This is the meaning of when we were young, we were considered to be like men. On a practical note, very often I hear from people, I know nothing. I have no background. I don't know anything. I feel so insignificant. I walk into shul. I don't know how to follow. I feel so nothing. You know what the answer to that is? You feel nothing? Great. This, this is good. Hold on to that feeling and I'll channel it. Hold on to that feeling and now start to learn Torah. Start to pray. 
If you feel like nothing, you feel small and insignificant, that's wonderful. The problem is that many times people take that feeling of insignificance and say, why should I start? Eh, forget about it. I'm going to leave. I don't like this feeling. I don't want to be in a space which makes me feel small. People get intimidated by feeling small. And here they're ever saying, no, 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 no. Don't let that smallness be intimidating. On the contrary, you feel small, you've got what you need to achieve the greatest thing possible. And that is access to God. You have the opportunity to learn Torah now and to learn Torah right. You have the opportunity to pray and that this prayer should actually be like the spine that's going to hold up all of your Judaism. Don't be crushed. Don't be um, dejected by that feeling of smallness, by the feeling of, of insignificance. On the contrary, it's a very valuable feeling. And in fact, it is the most valuable feeling that a Jew can have because that is the master key to success in everything Jewish. In Torah, mitzvahs, in prayer, and everything. And, um, and, that, and that's really what Judaism is all about, being connected to God. And how do you connect to God? Through humility. So some people have humility by the fact that even though they've accomplished so much, they have the, how do you say, the presence of mind to realize that they haven't even started. And then there are those that they feel humble because, yeah, we haven't done much. Great. Use that feeling to access God himself. Take that feeling and open up the prayer book and, and pray the little bit that you can. Take that feeling and open up a chumash, open up a Torah book and start to read whatever you can, whatever you're able to understand. That is the most valuable way, the most important way to serve God. And with that, we'll be able to be like Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our forefather, who, when in a time of need, was able to approach God and instead of demanding and quetching, he said, oh God, I have nothing. I'm a nobody. Please take care of me. And we see it worked, right? God took care of him. Same thing is over here. We should approach God and say, God, I don't know much. It's fine. I feel very small. Please help me. Please help me succeed in my journey, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, and living a meaningful life. Thank you all for watching and for joining us tonight. And uh, we'll be seeing you next week, Sunday.